are listening to the Vice Chancellor's Hour, a ministry of Radio ABC on the campus of African Bible University. I'm Jeremiah Pitts, a professor and administrator here at African Bible University in Uganda. The purpose of the Vice Chancellor's Hour is to provide biblical and theological teachings that are an extension of the ministry here at the university. Fourth part of our ongoing series. We'll have one more episode after that, and we'll cover another book. After we finish the books, uh, we're going to have an episode that's just question and answer. So we'll have a, a time where you can ask questions and submit those questions, and we'll answer the questions, and you'll be able to hear your name and where you're from on the radio. That's kind of an, a, a good opportunity, I think, for most people. Uh, so if you have any questions about the shortest books of the Bible— that we've covered. We'd love to answer those questions for you. We're doing the shortest books of the Bible because they often are the most neglected. They're the ones really that people don't spend as much time in. You're less likely to have heard a sermon about them or a Sunday school lesson or something similar. And uh, it's still God's word. It is the word of God. And because of that, it does have something to say to us and for us uh, about who God is, about how we can bring him glory and uh, what we ought to do as we live as Christian people. And so for that reason, I've spent some time looking at, uh, looking at the shortest books of the Bible. Uh, today we'll be looking at almost the shortest book of the Bible. It's almost so close. It's just a few words off. And today we'll be looking at the book of Second John. Second John. Uh, of course, there's a First John. It's, uh, it also is a short book, but it's, it's quite a bit longer than Second John. And uh, next week, not to give it away, but we'll also be doing 3 John. 2 John has 245 words in the original languages. 245 words. That's not much. It's a pretty short book. And, uh, you know, it's for that reason, I think, that it often is looked past. So though it doesn't have much to say to us. In fact, though, the opposite is true. Second John is for us as God's people, and it does have something to say for us, and I think is very helpful uh, for God's people to spend some time in his word, even those short books that we might otherwise neglect. Now, it has the name Second uh, John, and of course, if it says Second John on it, then you automatically know that it's the book of John. But why is it called Second John? Someone who carefully was to read through Uh, the book would see that the name John is never mentioned. It's not mentioned one time in there. So it's a little bit unlike some of the other books we looked at where they mentioned who they were. Atlantic, for instance, the book of Jude, the book of Obadiah, and uh, Paul is mentioned in the book of Philemon. Um, These books all say who the author is, and this one doesn't. It doesn't say it's John. And so that leaves a little bit for us to discover who that might be. I I think as you read through the Bible— and you see titles like Second John. Uh, hopefully, you're aware uh, that the titles of the books uh, very often are uh, are our understanding of what's going on there. Right? They're not the they're not the inspired titles uh, in many cases. And so, uh, the book of Second John is our understanding uh, that it's written by a guy named John. And you might, as a listener, as a reader, think to yourself, why? Why do we know that this is John who wrote this? And uh, I'm, I'm here to tell you there's very good reasons to believe that when we titled this uh, book, the second uh, epistle from John, 
that we we titled it correctly, that it really is from John. Um, and you can have full confidence that this is a, a letter from John written to a specific uh, group of people, and uh, you can accept it as such. And so you might say, well, okay, fair enough. So you say that's something I can have confidence in. Um, but you, you're saying that, right? So how can I believe it with you? Help me to believe it with you. Uh, and so uh, allow me to give you just a little bit of evidence. I'll spend more time on this than I think I did the other letters simply because it doesn't say who it came from. Uh, one of the most important pieces of information when we talk about the Bible is always what's referred to as the internal evidence, the internal evidence. So what does the book say about itself? And uh, maybe that maybe that feels like cheating to you, right? Um, you might say, well, of course it says, uh, you know, it's going to have things to say about itself. But um, in actuality, how do we handle most things that we read? If I get a letter and the letter says that it's, um, it's from my local government, uh, I don't normally say, is it really from my local government? You know, if it has the it has the stamp of approval on it, it's on official letterhead. Um, it says it is, and what it's saying is is something that the local government would say. I, I think, oh yeah, that's probably local government. If I get a letter from my mother and uh, it uses her name and it sounds like her, um, I'm not going to say. You know, I'm not going to believe this is a letter from my mother until I, you know, have three or four other people who confirm they saw it. Of course, you don't do that. You say, oh, yeah, it's got the right stamp. It's on the right letterhead. It sounds like the person or something they would say or how they would say it. You'd say, yeah, of course, of course, this is this is from them. We can expect it's from them. So internal evidence is a very important component. What what does it have to say? Uh, second John, second epistle of John. Uh, has a lot of internal evidence and a lot of internal evidence. The internal evidence uh, is that we can take the uh, epistles of John, that's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We could take the gospel of John. Uh, you know you know the gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John being written by John. You can take so 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the gospel of John, and you can take especially the part of uh, the book of Revelations, um, that's uh, primarily like a letter. Let's Revelation chapters one through three. And if you were to take the information that it's in them, especially how the information is said, the terminology, the, the vocabulary, the words that are used, uh, you you can kind of figure out that it sounds very similar. Um, experts refer to this as linguistic markers. So when individuals uh, talk a lot or we write a lot, uh, I'm sure you're not surprised to hear that we follow patterns, that we usually say the same things in the same ways over and over again uh, if you have enough of our information. Of course, if the topic is a different topic, we're going to use different words. We may say the new topic in a slightly different way, of course, because you're dealing with a new topic. But when you're talking about the same things, the same subject, you're often going to talk about it in the same way. And again, that's called a linguistic marker. Uh, I can tell you as an instructor, uh, you know, I'm a professor here at African Bible University. It's a fantastic university. Uh, I teach both uh, linguistics courses. I have a, a graduate degree in linguistics and I, I teach some uh, courses for our biblical studies department as well. And um, that's because I have a, a graduate degree in, in theology. Um, 
I can tell you as an instructor, if you talk to someone a lot and then you read one of their papers, you very often can figure out if that paper sounds like them or not, right? You can you can expect they're going to use the same words in the same way. Even if they're trying to work hard to, to dress it up a little bit, it's still going to sound like them on some level. And our writing works that way as well. In the, in the, in the ancient writing here, you have this, this letter. It's 2,000 years old basically. You can expect that if I were to compare it to the other letters, if it's written by the same person, it's going to have a lot of similarities. And if it's written by a different person or different persons, they're going to have a lot of dissimilarities. They're not going to sound the same. And in fact, when we compare them with one another, it's overwhelmingly similar. It's overwhelmingly similar. And so we have every reason to believe that the book of 2 John, because of the internal evidence, was written by the apostle John, that, that disciple who is so close to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Very important that it was written by this apostle. So that's the internal evidence. And of course, internal evidence, again, is incredibly important. Thankfully, we have other evidences as well. We also have external evidence, the evidence we find from outside the book itself. If I had a letter and I wasn't sure where it came from, I might ask someone, right? You know, if I see a piece of mail and it shows up uh, in my house, uh, I would go ask whoever got the mail, say it's my wife, and I would say, hey, where did this letter come from? And because she's at home and she received it, she might be able to tell me. She would say, oh, yeah, we got that letter from Paul or we got that letter from Joshua or Emmanuel, whoever. So that external testimony, right, of someone who would know, someone who was around at the time, um, either the time the letter was written or the time the letter was received and in either group, that would be a good, strong piece of evidence for us of, of who it came from. And again, that would carry a lot of weight, carry a lot of weight with us, especially if they were there when it was written or when it was received, especially if they knew who the author was and they had talked to the author about it. All that would be uh, strong pieces of evidence. And, and think about it. That's something that carries weight with us legally, doesn't it? Um, if, if I have uh, an important ceremony or an imp important exchange, it's not uncommon that I would have to have a witness. I have to have a witness, right? Think about a marriage, a marriage ceremonial. The, 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 the legal aspect of the ceremony uh, requires a witness. And what's the witness's job? They're affirming that they saw with their own eyes that they were really there, that it really was the persons or representatives of the persons in some, uh, in some cases who made the arrangement, right? Who in this case, they got married, right? If you have a legal exchange, say the execution of a contract, it's not uncommon that uh, you would have someone there, not just the person themselves signing it, saying it's them and they agree to it and so forth. But you have a third party. Someone else is there and they're also signing it. They're also agreeing uh, that the person who says they are who they are really is who they are and that they really did – they really did uh, – they did sign it. Uh, you know, when you, when you make sure you have the right credentials to do certain things, you have to bring your diploma. Um, that's a very common thing here in Uganda to bring your diploma. 
to demonstrate that you graduated. But it's not enough just to have the diploma that's signed by the right people. Uh, in some cases, they expect also that it's notarized. Notarized, and so that notary has a stamp, and often uh, it's a raised seal. So there's a imprint in the paper itself, along with the stamp. And the notarization is actually just someone saying, "I witnessed that these people are saying um, that this is a good diploma." That's it. Their signature really is their signature. They are saying. I, I think you get the point. And it's essentially this. Even today in court, uh, in our legal documents and exchanges, even marriage, um, we accept the witness of a third party and we, that's a type of external evidence. That third party saying, I was there, I saw the person or I talked to the person or I saw the person do whatever, whatever it is. And you might, uh, you might not be surprised or maybe you are, I'm not sure to find that there's external evidence for John being the author of the book of 2 John. And what kind of uh, external evidence would suffice? What if there were people who knew John, who were around the same time that John was, and uh, who was a witness to some work and conversation with John, and um, they're claiming that John wrote this? Yeah, that'd go a long way, wouldn't it? And in fact, that's what we have. We have several early church fathers who claim to have heard John speak himself and um, who have claimed that John was the author of these epistles, including Second John. And in fact, uh, from the early church until only around 300, uh, around 300 AD, there literally was no one else that we're aware of who thought it was anyone else besides John the Apostle. So everyone we talk to, everyone agrees, all the records we have say up until around 300 that uh, it actually is John the Apostle who, who wrote it. And by the way, the, the person around 300 who, who thought maybe it wasn't John the Apostle, their reason for thinking that actually isn't very strong. Notice they don't have any external evidence. There's no one for them to talk to because they're very, you know, they're more than 200 years removed from John. They don't have anyone they could have talked to, and they certainly didn't know John himself to be able to say, yeah, for sure it wasn't John. They, there's no one who could have provided that kind of evidence for them. They had their own reasons, I'm sure. But if you're comparing someone who was there versus someone who wasn't there about what happened, I think you always go with the person who was there, right? Unless you have some really compelling uh, other type of evidence. But that's just not the case here. Both the evidence from within and the evidence from the people who lived during that day who interacted with John. And in fact, everyone for you know over 200 years all thought John the Apostle wrote Second John. And so with that kind of evidence – it's really hard to come to any other conclusion, isn't it? You know, it really is. And so I think it's uh, very strong, strong enough that I don't have any doubts that the Apostle John wrote the book of Second John. That's kind of amazing. So if it doesn't say it was written by John, what does it say? This is what it says. Some of it's, I think, probably obvious, and some of it may be a bit of surprise. The book of Second John goes like this. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us 
and will be with us forever. So let's start with that, that idea of an elder. Elder here is just a term presbyteros, presbyteros, which is uh, kind of a word that does dual duty. That is to say that it has kind of a general use and a specific use. And what I mean by that is elder was just a term sometimes that generically meant an older person. But in a Christian context, especially in the New Testament, uh, it began to take a new emphasis, uh, one that wasn't just a general term for an older person, but instead specifically meant someone who was a leader within a local context, specifically a local congregation. And so uh, an elder is someone who then led the congregation and worked with other presbyters in the community uh, to work together as a whole church. Um, If you've heard the word Presbyterian, the word Presbyterian comes from the Greek word presbyteros, this idea of an elder. And Presbyterian churches have leaders. They often refer to them as elders. Not every Presbyterian congregation calls them elders, but it is very common to call them elders. And where do they get that term? They get it from the Bible, especially from the New Testament. So that's why they're called that way. They did represent local congregations. And uh, they were leaders, not just representatives, but they were leaders of local congregations as well. They were looked to as being, uh, as the one who who leads the congregation. So, uh, and oftentimes they were working together. So there was a group of elders who worked together in the local context, uh, especially in the local in the local church. And you can see this uh, as as John is writing that it's clear that he is writing on behalf not just of himself, but to some degree of a local congregation. You can see this in 2 John verse 13. It's the very last verse of the passage. Uh, John says, The children of your elect sister greet you. The children of your elect sister greet you. And and this kind of sounds like a little bit like uh, code, doesn't it? Uh, Notice again that he says he's the elder, the presbyteros, writing to the elect lady and her children. And then at the bottom, he says um, that the children of your elect sister greet you. He's talking about there his local congregation. So he's writing as a leader of a local congregation. He's writing to another congregation uh, and uh, to the people who are in the congregation. And um, so this tells us then that he's writing not just to an individual, but instead he's writing to a group. Um, why do we think that? Well, uh, the term elect lady is a little bit unusual in the New Testament. Uh, It's not something we see very commonly, but it is very common for us to see believers mentioned as children. Jesus did this quite frequently and referred to believers as children. And uh, we see that especially in the book of John, where the words of Jesus repeatedly record him referring to believers as children. That's language clearly that John held on to, and it makes the most sense here that he's not writing a personal letter between him and some woman and her kids on behalf of that woman's sister and her sister's kids, but instead is writing to a church and the members of the church, the believers in the church, 
on behalf of himself and his church and the believers in his church. You might take, for instance, uh, a look at Third uh, John, and if you were to look at the fourth verse uh, in Third John, it says this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And here he's talking about uh, believers who've come to belief because of the work that John has done in their midst. He's referring to them there as his children. And he's happy to hear they're walking, that is, they're doing uh, the things that John instructed them in. They're walking by faith, going about the work that God's given them to do, as John has explained it to them. That's why he has that sort of father-son relationship, not unlike the relationship Paul talked about when he discussed it in the book of Philemon, with Philemon. So you may remember that. If not, I encourage you. Very soon we'll have podcasts available that will be recordings of these messages that will be free and available all the time. You can go and download them and listen to them later. That way, if you miss us on our regularly scheduled program, you'll be able to catch them anytime. I think that's going to hopefully be a good blessing to you and to everyone uh, who gets a chance to hear it. That's certainly our hope. But yeah, you have uh, this elect lady and her children. And uh, so we're writing to not a person, but a group of people, a group of believers in a local church context. And of course, that makes it a lot more obvious why a book like Second John would be included in the Bible. What are uh, some important elements of this book? Maybe we can just say it this way, as you know I like to do. <laughs> what does that have to do with us? What does it have to do with us? What are some themes that we pick up? And uh, one thing that you have to look at, and again, these are two terms that are very important for John throughout all of his writings, is this idea of truth and love. Truth and love, especially, as you'll see in a moment, the relationship between truth and love. And so you see that right in the beginning, right? The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be us forever. So he loves the elect lady. He loves that church. He loves the people of that church, especially the people he influenced in the church, uh, if we can understand that uh, through the book of Third John. And it says he loves them. But how does he love them? He loves them in truth. And by the way, that's uh, not something he says that's particular to him. But basically, everyone who knows the truth also loves them as well, because the truth is in us. It lives in us. It abides in us. And the truth itself will be with them forever. Notice what we might here call the primacy of truth. Or if you want to say it a little bit differently, the central importance of truth. So he begins saying, I love, but in truth, and also all those who know the truth, because of the truth, and the fact that the truth will be there forever. He goes on in the body of the letter itself as he starts talking about this topic. You can see it in verse 4. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as you were commanded by the Father. Father there talking about about God. So he was very excited. He rejoices greatly because they are walking in the truth. So this is an issue because... There have been people who have come in who try to use this idea of truth 
to then say that people don't have to then act the way that John has told them they ought to act, right? They, they've said essentially like love is enough. If you have love, you can act in these ways. You don't have to do what the Bible says because love is the most important thing. You ever heard that message? I know for a fact that's one that I often hear. People will say, ah, you know, ah, you Christians, it's about doing this and not doing that. There's so many rules. Man, I just want a God who loves. You know, God is love. God is love, right? And if you don't know your scriptures well, that stings a little bit, right? Because God does love us. In fact, some of the first verses many people memorize are about how God loves them because it's true. God loves his people. He does love his people, Right? Isn't that most popular? Or maybe it used to be the most popular. I'm not sure it is anymore. I think now the most popular verse is judge not lest you be judged. That's certainly the one I hear the most often. Uh, but it used to be the most popular verse in the Bible was for God so loved the world. Right? And if, if someone only knows about that part of the Bible, then when you say truth is important, they're going to think that's incompatible. They're thinking that doesn't match. I thought love was the most important thing. But what does John what does John tell us? John who knows Jesus, who loves Jesus, what does he tell us? He says, verse 6, this is love. And he's about to tell us. He's about to tell us what love is. Are you going to be surprised by what it says? This is what it says that we walk according to his commandments. Wait, what? What? How can it be? How can it be? That love is walking according to his commandments. It's a super interesting question, isn't it? Do you remember um, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was? Think about it for a second. Do you remember what, what, what Jesus said was the greatest commandment? Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. And then he says... That the second is like unto the first. That the second is like unto the first. The second greatest commandment is like the first. And what is the second greatest commandment, he says? To love your neighbor as yourself. So this is kind of interesting. I want to think about it on two levels. Uh, One is sort of a surface level. Okay, so just hang with me for a second on the surface level, and we're going to go deeper. The first is when he talks about commandments, Jesus' answer is love, love of God, love of neighbor. In fact, he uses intensifiers. He uses specific ways of saying how you're supposed to love God that I'll just summarize as saying with everything. Love God with everything that you are. And love your neighbor the way you love yourself. No man hates his own self, but he nourishes and cherishes himself, it says in the scriptures. So his answer when asked about commandments was, that we love God and we love each other. Here John says, very similarly, what is love? That we walk according to his commandments. That's what love is, right? So on the surface level, you can look and see that there's a, there's a commandment love connection for Jesus and there's a commandment love connection for John as well. They both connect these ideas of commandment and loving They connect them together. It's not a surprise because John was trained by Jesus. John gets his ideas from Jesus, and he's just repeating this. And you might say, well, it didn't sound exactly the same. It didn't sound exactly the same to me. That's right. He's saying the same thing in sort of a different way. And how do I get that idea? 
Well, he says it here in verse 5. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning that we love one another. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm not telling you something new. I wasn't telling you something new. I'm telling you the same thing that you should have always heard, which is you ought to love one another. Now, where did he get the idea that we ought to love one another? He gets it from Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, of course, also says that the disciples will be known by their love for each other. So John's not coming up with something new, and he's not saying he's coming up with something new. He's saying the commandment I have that I'm giving you is the same one we always had, which is you love each other. And then so what's love? Love is that we walk according to, to his commandments. That's the one we've heard from the beginning, he says, that we should walk in it. Now, I want you to kind of think about this. Uh, a lot of times we take this idea of love and we put it in opposition to God's commandments. Uh, you might say it's in opposition to holiness. But it's clear that that's not how the Bible thinks about it. The Bible doesn't think about it as you can have love or you can have holiness or you can have love or you can have commandments, but you can't have them both. That's not what it says at all. The Bible tells us that the most loving thing that we can do is to follow God's commandments. And in fact, those two things are reciprocal. What we ought to do, we could say it this way. What's the most loving thing to do? To do what God tells us. What, what does God tell us to do? To love God and to love each other. And how are we supposed to love God and love each other? By doing his commandments. It makes a lot more sense if you know about the Ten Commandments. Surely you know about the Ten Commandments, right? You know the Big Ten? Sometimes uh, uh, you summarize them uh, this way. Really, the first four commandments specifically deal with how we interact with God. And the final ones deal with how we interact with each other. Yeah, think about that. You know, we should have no other gods before me. That's how we interact with God. We, we're supposed to love God with our whole heart, right? Okay, say we uh, don't take his name in vain. We don't have any graven images, right? We remember a Sabbath day. We keep it holy. These are all directed towards loving God the way God ought to be loved. That's what those commandments are about. They're directed towards God. What about the second half? That's how we interact with each other, right? You honor your father and mother. You don't lie. You don't commit adultery, you don't commit murder, you don't uh, covet one another's things. That's about each other. And so if I were to ask you, can I murder you and still love you the way you ought to be loved? I'm not saying could I claim to love you. I'm not saying could I feel something like a wanting for you. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like real biblical love. The answer is it's clearly not loving to murder someone, right? It's clearly not loving. Uh, are you loving God if God is not your whole God? If he, he's only a part-time God to you? Is that really the love that we ought to have for one another? I think it's clear that it's not. And so it just is that when Jesus was telling us that we have to love God and we have to love each other, love our neighbor as ourselves, he's just summarizing the Ten Commandments in a way. That's why it's so important. It's just him saying that we ought to do what he's always told us to do. Is that a surprise? I sure hope not. It seems to be that it's obvious to me, at least, that the scripture is working with the scripture and that the words we have here 
are mutually reinforcing. That is, he's telling us what's true, and he's telling it to us over and over again. He's telling us we need to love each other, and the most loving thing we can do is to treat one another the way that he would have us to treat one another. And that's why it's an affront not just against the person you wrong, but it's an affront against God when you don't treat them the way they ought to be treated. Because it's God himself who commanded you to love them. And when you treat them in an unloving way, when you cheat on your spouse, when you lie to your kids or to your boss, when you steal from your work, when you covet from your neighbor, when you lie about people, that you're not just doing something wrong against them, although you are doing something wrong against them. But you're doing something that God's told you not to do. You're being unloving. Now you may say, well, it's more than that. Sin's more than that, Jeremiah. And I would say, yeah, it is, but it's not less than that. It's definitely not less than that. And that, believe it or not, in one way, is more than enough. Unless you think this is something that only John is concerned about, this idea of the relationship between the command that God's given us and the love that we have, you may notice that Paul says something very similar. He says it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. He's a little bit different words, but I think we can see that he's saying the same thing. He says in verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we do for you. That sounds a lot like what John says, doesn't it? Love for one another, abounding in it, right? And why? Paul tells us, verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. Blameless in holiness. What is Paul telling us? Paul is telling us that if we love one another, it changes how we interact with each other. That love really does drive our obedience, our obedience to Christ and our obedience in treating one another the same as he told us to do it. It's such an important thing. I don't want you to miss it. You may think, well, it's really more important that I love someone than it is that I do what God would have me to do. But God is telling you the most loving thing that you can do is treat people the way he would have you to treat them, to follow his commandments. That's the most loving thing. Okay. How does this get us back to truth? You may remember I started out by talking about truth and love, and and I didn't lose the thread, I promise you. Maybe it feels like it did because we haven't talked about truth in just a few minutes. Well, the truth is this, okay? The truth is that John is writing to a church that has had people who don't believe in that connection between the love that God commanded and the commandments he gave them. So there are people coming in saying, no, no, no. If you love someone, the commandments are not that important, right? The love part is the important part. The commandment part is not that important. I'm not having to guess at this. John says so himself. Verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching Do not receive him into your house or give him greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. What is it saying? He's saying, I'm telling you all this connection about the love and the commandments precisely because there are deceivers. 
and the deceivers are out in the world, they're not truly confessing Christ. They're telling you instead that you don't have to listen to what the teachings of Christ are, including this connection between love and the commandments, because they're not abiding in that truth. They do not have the reward of God. And because of that, they are leading other people astray, and you should have nothing to do with them. If people are coming to you and they're telling you, you don't have to listen to Christ's words, you don't have to follow Christ's teachings, you can do whatever you want, you are not to follow them. You are not to work with them as though they were believers. Now, understand, this is not the same thing as interacting with unbelievers, people who clearly aren't even claiming to be Christians. We always have to make that distinction. Uh, Paul makes a very careful distinction here. It really helps us to clear it up. And John, in this epistle, is saying the same thing. There are those who are within who claim to be Christians but don't believe God's word. In fact, they go farther. They deny God's word. They deny, in this case, specifically the teachings of Christ. And those people are dangerous. Why? Because they're deceivers. They're they're there in that role to deceive you. Yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Do you believe the teachings of Christ? Oh, no, not at all. This can't be. You can't can't say you're a Christian (laughs) and have nothing to do with Christ. I, I was talking to my daughter my my daughter is uh, is learning an ancient language, and uh, in this ancient language, she says, "I'm having a hard time with the vocabulary because the word for Christ and the word for Christian are almost identical. They're almost exactly the same." And I kind of chuckled, right? I laughed a little bit, and I said, "Isn't that what we expect? Wouldn't you expect that? It's almost like the word Christian came from the word Christ." Now I ask you, brother and sister. How can you say you're a Christian, that is someone who is of Christ, a little Christ in some way, uh, a follower of Christ, and then also say, but I don't, I don't really follow the teachings of Christ. When he tells me the commandments, I don't listen to that. I just want to listen to the love part. The love part feels good. The commandment part doesn't feel so good. It doesn't make people around me happy. I want to have them happy. That's not it, right? And so it pushes into this idea then that you've heard me read already which is they have to abide in truth. That word abide, it's, it's almost like to stay in, maybe even stronger than that, almost like, almost like to live in it, like it's your, it's your home. It's the place where you stay. I don't know what place you think of when I say the word home. Where do you think of? That's the place you abide. It's where your life is. And here John is saying we have to abide in this teaching. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. you got to live in it. you got to live in this truth. And what truth is that? You, you have to abide in the teaching of Christ. And if you don't, if you try to get, go beyond him or away from him, he says, you don't even have God. You don't even have God. This is the Christian teaching, brother and sister. This is the Christian teaching that we ought to abide in him. A similar question came up in the book of John chapter 6. Verses 28 and 29, the people who were following Jesus said, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So, So believe in Christ. And you can't tell me you believe in Christ, but you have no interest in doing what Christ told you to do. This is totally incompatible. It's totally doesn't match. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work. You can't have that. It doesn't make any sense. What if I told you I respect my father more than anyone else? And you said, do you go to your father for advice? And I said, oh, no, no, I I don't do that. I I do whatever I want. What about if your father disagrees with you? I I don't care. If my father disagrees with me, I do what I want. 
And you would say, how do you respect your father more than anyone else if you don't listen to what he says? You don't ask him for advice. You do whatever you want. How, how is that respect? How is that love? How is that following? And the same thing is true with Christ. You can't tell me you have Christ and you have no interest in what he's told us about who he is, what he's done, and what we are to do as a result of it. You can't tell me that. It's incompatible. And so let me give you this warning. And the warning is, just as he says, if you have someone who comes to you who's telling you those things, you don't have to listen to the Bible, then you're not to listen to them. You're to avoid their teaching because their teaching is not a Christian teaching. I'm saying this to Christians, okay? Christian, if someone comes to you and they're not proclaiming the truth, you are to avoid them. Avoid that teaching. Don't have any part with it. Don't say like, oh, well, they say some good things. Well, of course, everybody says some good things. Everyone, everyone, I won't name names, everyone has said something that was true, even if everything else they say is terrible. You know, but is it acceptable? Is it acceptable before God? Is it what they have you, you to do? And you, you might think, well, man, John is just being so strong about this. Remember, Jesus also is the one that talks about wheat and the tares, right? That there are some that are with him and some that aren't with him. He talks about the sheep and the goats. He talks about the vine and the vine not producing fruit and having to be burned. I mean, Jesus is saying the same types of things. Paul saying the same types of things. 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 4. If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough, right? What is he saying? He's saying, look, you have these false teachers who are coming in. They're proclaiming another Jesus than the one they proclaimed, or they're receiving a different spirit than the ones they received. They're accepting a gospel that's not really the gospel. And ultimately, what does he say to people who offer a gospel that's not the true gospel? He says, let them be accursed, meaning, just as is described here in Second John, that they're ones who are up for um, not the eternal rewards, but the eternal punishment that goes the opposite of the reward. These people had fellowship together. They had uh, koinonia, as they sometimes say. And with that fellowship, with that coming together that they had inside their house as uh, people who were working together as a church, they were growing together. They were working together. And just as you might have a healthy body, if you introduce something that's unhealthy, it can tear it apart. And that's why he says in verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him in your house or give him any greeting. This uh, referring uh, most probably to their house church. Don't let the wicked people in. Don't let the false teacher in. Don't let them come to your gatherings. Don't let them come to your church. Don't let them come to your fellowship and bring their false teachings into it. Repudiate their false teaching. Now understand, again, this is different from an unbeliever. right? Those who are without, we, we preach to them because they're not pretending to be one of us. right? They're not acting as though they are believers. And so the danger in one sense is less. They're not trying to say they're being Christians. But someone who's telling you they're a Christian who isn't could lead you astray without you realizing it if you're not aware, if you're not paying attention. And that's exactly what's being, that's what's being uh, warned against here. Why? And this really gets to why he's writing this. He says in verse 12, Though I have much to write to you, right? it could have been a longer, a longer letter, it's a pretty short one, I would rather not use paper and ink Instead, I hope to come to you to talk face to face. Why? So that our joy may be complete. It's interesting because he talks about this this koinonia, this fellowship situation where people are coming together 
to worship together and rejecting the false teacher. And instead, his full joy is to be there with them. He wants to see him face to face. It's not good enough to write a letter. Have you ever felt that way? It's not enough for a phone call. It's not enough for a text message or or whatever. As good as those things are, they're definitely preferable to silence. But really, the thing that you need most is to be with each other. So yeah, this radio message, maybe you'll hear it as a podcast at some point, is good, right? Hopefully it's a good teaching. I'm hoping that. I hope we're doing it because it helps you. But this is not a good replacement for you gathering together with your brothers and sisters in Christ, that you have fellowship with them. Nothing that we can do over the radio competes with you going to an actual church. No podcast, no radio message, you fill in the blank, is as good as going to church and having that type of fellowship with fellow believers because God does something there that's part of his work in this world that he doesn't do through those other things, as beneficial as they may be. He wants to come. He wants to talk to them face-to-face. Understand, John here is writing a letter to them that is held on to for 2,000 years at this point and, and will be into eternity. Why? So our joy may be complete. That is, experiencing fellowship with them is a completeness of joy that can't be experienced through letters only. And so I would encourage you, brother and sister, that you also would enjoy the fellowship of God's people by worshiping on the Lord's Day with brothers and sisters as you are able. I know there's many complications with COVID and lockdown and restrictions and so forth during this time, but forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. And as you are able, that you enjoy that privilege with whatever safeties are necessary and uh, that you can have a fullness that is complete. For those of you who can't, and there may be reasons why you can't, there always have been. There always have been reasons, legitimate reasons, why people can't be at church on a Sabbath day, on the Lord's day. And uh, this isn't a message about that, so I don't want to get into all of those, those things. But if you find yourself with a legitimate reason why you can't, don't you feel a sense in which you're not, you're not complete? You ought to feel like there's something missing. And you ought to long for the day when you could be back together. I can tell you, I praise God. I was raised in a Christian family, and I went to church. It's a joke, but it's not totally a joke. But uh, I I joke sometimes that the two ways you could get out of church on Sunday is if you were bleeding severely or if you were throwing up. That was it. Those are the only two options. Uh, It's not really true. That's that's an exaggeration, but uh, it's it's not far off from the truth. You, You had to really, truly be sick, right? And uh, so when I was in my 20s, I went to take a a short graduate program uh, in Morocco. And Morocco is a a Muslim country. It's like, I think, 97% Muslim at the time. And uh, very, very few Christian churches there. And the ones that are there were severe restrictions on their ability to witness and evangelize. And uh, so their church is typically very small house churches or they're very old church buildings with very few people in them. And so for five weeks, uh, I was not able to go to church. And I've got to tell you, I listened to messages online like this one, sermons, old sermons. I read sermons, and um, I had never known the longing of missing something like church as much as I did. I really felt it, like physically felt it. And I didn't feel that again until COVID came in and churches were restricted. And i got to tell you, my sincere prayer is that I never feel it again. I don't, I'm, I'm done with feeling that way, to be honest with you. I say it to say this, I, I did ultimately find a church and I went to it and um, the service itself was biblical and uh, it really did preach God's word. And uh, just like the psalmist says, uh, like, a, like a deer longing for water, my soul longs after you, right? 
you're in a dry and dusty land, you want water more than anything else. And I felt like I was spiritually uh, in a dry and dusty land. I needed, I needed it. I needed to be a church. I needed to hear God's word. That's the type of longing that John is bringing here. He wants to see him face to face. What a beautiful way to say it, so that our joy may be complete. Our joy by ourselves is not complete. Our joy over radio, not complete. Our joy, if you stream something online like a service or whatever, it's not complete. Until God's people are together, their joy is not complete. And that's why we pray together as a church for the coming of Christ so that we may experience a unity that cannot be experienced any other way because we can only experience it together when we're in him, with him forever. Our joy truly won't be complete in a final way until that day comes. So we say with the Apostle John at the end of the book of Revelation, I'm sure you know how that book ends, don't you? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen, and I hope that you have an excellent week and that this was a blessing to you. I look forward to the next one on the epistle of Third John, and uh, hopefully uh, you're thinking of some questions you might have around these books. And until then, uh, looking forward to preparing and, and looking for questions from you. You've been listening to the Vice Chancellor's Hour, a ministry of Radio ABC on the campus of African Bible University. We hope this has been beneficial to your Christian walk and understanding. If it has, you can support the ministry of Radio ABC by going to AfricanBibleColleges.com and clicking on the Donate button. Don't forget to let them know in the comments that it's going to the Uganda station. If you have questions about anything in this or previous episodes, please write us at RadioABC993FM at gmail.com. That's Radio ABC 993FM at gmail.com. And we'll answer your question on a questions and answer episode. Until next time, may the peace of God and the fellowship of God's people encourage your hearts.